Uh, Gavin this week uh, shared an article with me uh, that was uh, presented some, some pretty alarming statistics, at least for a pastor, uh, some pretty alarming statistics that have been put out by uh, the Barna Research Group and the Pew Research Forum, which are both uh, forums that look at the trends of religion in our culture. And uh, one of the statistics that they uh, discovered is that one in five American Christians stopped going to church in any form, whether it's virtual or online, stopped going to church in any form in 2019, one in five Americans. Uh, They dug into the detail of that and discovered that 50% of millennials, now I had to look that up because I didn't know whether I was a millennial or not. I'm not. Uh, That's someone born between 1981 and 1996 50% of millennials stopped going to church in any form in the year 2019. And so what they also discovered is that that the number of Americans polled in 2019 who said they didn't go to church at all um, was 14%. They did that same question in 2020, and they discovered that number to be 53%. And so it's an interesting time in which we live in. Uh, Now, our tendency is to to sort of blame the virus, and certainly that is a huge factor in all of this. But many researchers argue that the seeds of this were planted long before this virus uh, came to be. And so the question becomes, how does the church today react to this? How do people of faith react to this? What ought we think about it all? Well, one of the things I think we have to be careful of is the one-to-one correspondence between church attendance and the place of people's faith. I don't think you can always correspond those two things together, but I do think that the Scriptures do bring those things together in some capacity, in the sense that if someone really has an apathetic view of the church and the role of the church and the importance of the church— then it also often leads to an apathetic view of the faith broadly. And so I think it's safe to say, based on these statistics and a lot of things that we found, I think it's safe to say that for many American Christians, it feels as if their faith is slipping away. Maybe that's you, whether you're sitting here or whether you're joining us online. Maybe that's you. Maybe you uh, feel this way as well. Uh, the faith, just for some reason, doesn't have the same power in your life that it once did. The faith feels sort of inconvenient, and you wonder whether life would just be a little bit easier without all of this. After all, the faith does ask a lot, and maybe you're feeling it asks too much. The cost is too much. The church asks for too much. And you might wonder whether your time, whether your money, whether your gifts could be better invested in some area of your life. You're really wondering whether it's all worth it at the end of the day. Maybe you're feeling that way now. I know there's been points in my life where I have felt that way over the years. And then beautifully comes the book of Hebrews. And what Hebrews reminds us is that all these statistics and the, and the things that they point to aren't really a new problem. Because as you open the book of Hebrews, what you discover is that it is a book that is written to those people who feel like their faith is slipping away. 
It's written to those who are really and honestly counting the cost of following Jesus Christ and wondering whether at the end of the day it is all really worth it. Well, what does Hebrews tell us? Well, it tells us in a resounding way this message. Very simply, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. A relationship with Jesus offers far more value than anything else, and so to walk away from Jesus is to walk away something of of infinite and incomparable value. And so the message of Hebrews is this, very simply, Jesus is better, so hold fast to Jesus. We're going to start our look at that this morning by looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to Hebrews chapter 11, reading verses 23 to 28, and then verses 39 to 40. So, uh, this, uh, this is uh, Hebrews, starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, this is God's Word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been, counted, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now skipping ahead to Hebrews uh, chapter 11, uh, verses 23 uh, through 28. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And now skipping ahead to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, They should not be made perfect. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the opportunity to study your Word, to meditate on it now for the power of the gospel that it contains, the power it has to to shape our hearts and transform our lives. Be with us as we uh, consider your Word now for the next few minutes. Help us to see your face as we reflect on your revelation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into this passage, let's, let's do a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews that should help us as we move forward. 
But the thing that makes that challenging is that the book of Hebrews is shrouded in all sorts of mystery. It's perhaps one of the, the most mysterious books in all of the New Testament. It's beautifully written. Uh, most scholars believe it is the finest Greek that you will find uh, in all of the New Testament. But nobody knows who wrote this book. Uh, and there's been a lot of theories as to who or who didn't write this book. Uh, some have attributed it to Paul, some to Apollos. Uh, some have attributed this book to um, Barnabas. Um, some have thought that it was, should be associated with Clement. And so there's all these theories out there. Uh, my, famous, my favorite theory is that, that Priscilla wrote this book of the Bible. And there is a theory out there that Priscilla actually wrote this book, but because it was in a, a very sort of patriarchal society, we couldn't allow a book written by a woman to be in the scriptures. And so the book has remained anonymous. And so that's my favorite theory. But of course, at the end of the day, we don't know who wrote this book. Um, and so it's shrouded in a lot of mystery. But there's a lot of other questions. We don't know when it was written. We don't know where it was written. We don't know to whom it was written. And so there's all sorts of mystery surrounding this magnificent book that we have in the backs of our Bibles. But if you read it, what you can deduce is this, that it was written to those who felt as if their faith was slipping away, as we mentioned before. What we do know is that when this book was written, Christians were facing all sorts of persecution. Uh, they could be arrested by the Roman authorities for refusing to declare that Caesar was Lord. And so, as a result of their faith, they could and would be excluded from their culture. They would be excluded from all the commerce that was around them. And so, think about it this way. If they chose to follow Jesus with their lives, then they could forget being successful they could forget about building any sort of reputation. They could forget about any sort of climbing of the social ladder because to follow Jesus at this moment, to follow Jesus meant that you would certainly be relegated to the margins of culture and to the margins of society. And of course, for some, that cost was just too high. What we can figure out from the book is that there were many Jewish Christians, people that had become Christians out of Judaism, that were simply deciding to return back to Judaism because it was a respected and established religion in the Roman Empire. And so because the cost of following Jesus was just too great, then they would return back to Judaism where the cost was much less. And so what many people believe the book of Hebrews is this, that it's a series of homilies or a, a series of sermons that are warning people of the danger of forsaking Jesus with their lives, pleading with Christians to hold on, to hold fast to their confession. In fact, that term or that phrase, hold on or to hold fast, is repeated all throughout the book of Hebrews. But it isn't the most common word in the book of Hebrews because the most common word in the book of Hebrews is the word better. 
And you even saw it all over the passages that we read this morning. That word better. And really when you think about it, it, it's a part of a brilliant impression that the writer of Hebrews presents to us. The writer isn't saying that you should hold on to your faith or hold fast to Jesus because that's what good people do. He's not saying that. The writer isn't saying that you should return back to the community of the church because that's what good and moral and ethical people should do with their lives. In fact, the writer, I don't think, is even using guilt as a motivation at all for these folks who feel like their faith is slipping away. The writer is simply reminding us and those in the first century world that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And to let your faith slip away is to actually let the most important and valuable thing in your life slip away. It's to turn from the very source of life to that which doesn't offer life at all. In fact, it's to turn to that which actually takes our lives away. Imagine it this way. Imagine uh, that you're shipwrecked at sea. Hopefully this has never happened to you. It never will happen to you. But imagine for a second uh, that you are shipwrecked at sea and you are one of the lucky ones, that you got a life preserver. And even with that life preserver, you had an abundant source of food and water and sunscreen. And so there you are in the middle of the ocean with your lovely life preserver and all the materials that you need for, lust, for life and sustenance. And then all of a sudden, you see floating in the water a very flimsy piece of driftwood. And you decide, for some reason in your mind, that it would be better for you to hang on to that piece of flimsy driftwood. And so you decide to forsake the life preserver and all the means of survival to go hang on to that flimsy piece of driftwood. Now, we hear that story and we say, well, that would be silly. That would be absolute madness to forsake the source of life for something that only takes life away. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews isn't using guilt. He or she is saying that, that this is all madness, that this is silly, that this is foolish. Don't forsake the things that are most important in life. Don't forsake Jesus for something that is lesser. Don't forsake the source of life for a flimsy piece of driftwood. And so this whole book is organized around showing us how Jesus is better than all of these lesser things. And what our passage does this morning, and the point of our passage this morning, is to show us that Jesus is, of course, better. But our passage this morning is directed around heroes, showing us that Jesus is better than all of the best heroes heroes of the faith. And the point of this passage this morning is that Jesus is even better than Moses. And that's what I want us to flesh out for the next few minutes. Um, I've, I personally, I've always been enamored with heroes. Uh, I love movies uh, about heroes. I love all the superhero movies that come out. 
I can remember as, as a kid, uh, I used to watch the old Indiana Jones movies. They were my favorite movies as a kid, and I'd watch them over and over again. And I can remember as a kid, I'd watch one of the Indiana Jones movies, and then I'd, I'd go out of the house, and our neighbors had this wonderful weeping willow tree. You've seen these weeping willow trees. And so I'd go over to my neighbor's house, and I'd pick off one of those branches, and it would be my whip just like Indiana Jones. And I would run all through the neighborhood on my own little adventures with my trusty whip at my side, enacting all these hero adventures throughout the neighborhood. And that's, that's sort of how I grew up because I've always been enamored with this sort of thing. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but it seems like every other movie and TV show that comes out nowadays is a hero movie and a hero TV show. And there's actually been some, some really good and interesting studies on, on the reason why these hero stories have become so common. And what all these researchers have discovered is this trend really started in 2008. If you remember back to 2008, we had a huge economic downturn. Uh, people lost a lot, of, a lot from their portfolios. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost a lot of money. Uh, some people lost their homes. And uh, just at that moment, this whole superhero craze uh, started. And some people have done some good studies. There's a great article in the New York Film Academy that found in the midst of all this loss of jobs and money and finances, the quote says this, People suddenly wanted escapism into a different world where the hero always triumphed and where distinctions between good and bad were easy to tell. So what all these researchers have discovered is that the tougher things get, the more you and I look to heroes. The harder and more challenging our circumstances get, the more we look to heroes. Well, for the Jewish people in the first century world, they had a few heroes. Uh, Abraham was a hero. David was a hero. Um, if you read all of, of Hebrews chapter 11, it's like a hall of fame of faith heroes for the Jewish people. But what the writer of Hebrews in particular singles out is Moses as a great hero of faith for God's people. And when you think about it, Moses is a very worthy admission to this hall of fame of heroes. After all, he was the faith hero that was raised up by God to deliver the Israelites from their Egyptian enslavement. And Hebrews reminds us why Moses was such a great hero. He had the opportunity to live within Pharaoh's home with all the wealth and the influence and the pleasure that it contained. But instead, he chose to number himself amongst the oppressed, to, to number himself amongst his own people who were slaves. And in so doing, he forsaked all, forsook all the, the wealth of the Egyptian kingdom. By faith, he saw more value in following God than in all the riches and the privileges of Egypt. He stood up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, because he believed fundamentally that God was on his side. 
And in so doing, he delivered God's people from their enslavement. Later, when he lifts up his hands, the Red Sea parts in two, and God's people are delivered through on dry land. He goes to to Mount Sinai. He receives the law. He receives a new covenant from God. He single-handedly takes an oppressed people group, and he forms a house. Chapter 3, verse 4, he forms a great nation, and he leads this nation to the doorstep of the promised land. He was a remarkable hero of the faith. But what the scriptures show us that it didn't have a whole lot to do with his leadership style or his giftedness. Those were not the things that fueled all of these things. It wasn't necessarily his courage, even though that was great, or, or his charisma that accomplished all these things. What Hebrews tell us is that it was his faith in God that accomplished all these things. But Hebrews 11 tells us it was his faith that God had provided something better for us. In fact, that's what Hebrews 11 says about all these men and women who were heroes of the faith. They had fundamentally a faith that believed that God had provided something better for us. And so what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see is this, that Moses was a great hero of the faith, but Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus, like Moses, left all the pleasures and wealth and blessing, except instead of leaving the blessings of a kingdom, he left all the pleasures and the wealth and the blessings of heaven to become one of us, to be numbered amongst the oppressed. Jesus saw more value in following the will of the Father than the bliss and all the blessings that heaven had to offer, even if it meant that he would need to suffer. Jesus didn't stand up to an earthly oppressor. Instead, he stood up to the oppressor of sin and death. He parted the waters, making a way of rescue and salvation. He ushered in a new covenant, a new law, a new way of relating to God. And he also forms a great people, his church, a house, built by his hands and built by his blood. He faithfully leads us through the wilderness of life, tenderly shepherding us every step of the way, and he will lead us to a better rest, to a better promised land. Because he paid the cost, you and I, we don't have to. Because he paid the cost, we can be made whole. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Abraham. He's better than Rahab. He's better than Gideon. He's better than David. He's better than Samuel. He's better than all of these worthy heroes of the faith. But what made all of these heroes so worthy is because they realized that something better was coming. One of the commentators beautifully put it this way, Great religious heroes like Moses serve as spiritual telescopes. Think about that image for a minute. Spiritual telescopes, tools used by God to magnify something greater than themselves. Jesus is the better hero. He is supreme. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I think all of us, to some degree or another, tend to orient our lives around heroes. Uh, it's probably not superheroes. Probably as adults, we don't emulate, emulate ourselves around Superman or other superheroes. And we probably don't run around the neighborhood with whips made out of willow tree branches anymore. But we all have heroes, people we tend to orient our lives around. I know that I've had coaches and professors that I've tried to emulate. I've had other pastors and friends and, and mentors that have helped chart the path for me. I've had other fathers who are better than I am or who've been through more than I have, who I've tried to parent my, uh, pattern my parenting around. And I think all that's okay. I think it's okay to, to respect and to emulate these people for their authenticity and for their giftedness. It's okay to look up to examples. But we must never forget that no matter how great our earthly heroes may be, Jesus is better. Jesus is always better. After all, our earthly heroes are earthly. And that means they're flawed, and sometimes they're flawed in very public ways, but Jesus is perfect. Our earthly heroes, they will pass away. They will eventually be forgotten. Only Jesus is eternal. Our earthly heroes may in provide for us inspiration, but only Jesus provides for us salvation. And so, friends, orient your life around the one true hero, the one who offers infinite and eternal value. And so if you feel yourself slipping away, then hold fast to our confidence. Hold fast to our one true hero. Hold fast to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray.